you know, we've really swung to this far pendulum of the love and mercy and grace of God, and we've forgotten that there's this notion of a judgment. There is an accounting of the way we live our life. What if you lived your life in the reality that the judgment of God is coming? What if you actually lived it? I mean, every day, like you got up and you're like, dude, God has a coming. It will be soon, and there is a judgment. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Good night, friends. My name is Shane, and I am just here this evening to give you a quick testimony of how God, how great God is. And frankly, I think total praise, to follow total praise is, is fitting. My family and I moved out here to Southern California back in fall of 2019. And uh, we were been excited to... to respond to what I was feeling on, uh, as a call on my life to, from God to do something greater for him. And so I'm enrolled at, at last year university doing the MDiv program. My family is here. My wife is, is working. Um, my daughters, Nalia and Nalani, are enrolled in school. And uh, they are here tonight. And this testimony really is Nalia's testimony. But... It happened to all of us, so I'll share it with you. We were probably there just, just about six months when Nalia comes home from school one day and she is, she doesn't look well. You know, the typical kind of uh, lethargic and she, she just looks run down. And sure enough, she's running a fever. And so we, think, we figure, well, probably the flu. And so we do what usually parents do. We put her to bed and, you know, put some Tylenol in her and, and pray and hope that things improve in the morning. But they don't. Over the course of the night, the fever spikes. And she's pushing 101, 102. And, you know, every time we give her Tylenol, it knocks it down a little bit. And then, inevitably, it returns. By day three, we are taking this a whole lot more seriously. This is not the flu. This is something else. And so we make our way to the emergency room. Now, typical emergency rooms, we're there a couple of hours before we see anybody. That, but the doctors, the doctors come in. They, they, they look her over. And they think the same thing. Flu. They send us home. I'll tell you now, I'm thankful for... The, the medical knowledge that the Lord has put into my wife because she notices things I didn't notice. By the morning of day four, she says, does this kid look yellow to you? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> and then she looks at her tongue and she says, she looks like she's got strawberry tongue. I'm like, what's strawberry tongue? The fever continues. 
we continue to play this, this back and forth. And so by that evening, we're like, nope, we're going back to the ER. In fact, we end up up here at the East Campus Urgent Care. And she does the same thing with the doctor that she does with me. She says, look at these two things. And the doctor looks at them, and sure enough, yeah, I, okay, I see what you're saying. Let's run some tests. And so we wait half hour, 45 minutes. Doctor comes back into the room, and he says to us, are you, uh, are you giving me all of her medical history? Are you telling me everything about her? And we say, yeah, of course. And he says, because she looks like she's in acute renal failure. And now you know what we're thinking. We're thinking, Lord, you brought us out here. Our family is 2,000 miles in that direction. We're now making friends. We're in school. On top of that, my wife has just transferred from one job to working here at the university. And so she's got a couple of days still to go before her insurance kicks in. And he says to us, um, we are going to get an ambulance, and we're going to take her back over to the emergency room. And my wife about, just about bursts into tears at that point. We get back over here, and they start looking, through, looking, looking her over, and doctor after doctor comes in. We think we've got a diagnosis, but it doesn't make sense. She's too old. She doesn't present with all the right, all, all the right uh, uh, symptoms. And some of the symptoms she's got don't connect to this particular thing. And so we say, well, what's the thing? We think, and, and they say, we think she's got Kawasaki disease. I have never heard of Kawasaki disease. I called my parents, and I said, Dad, you guys need to pray. I called the in-laws. You need to pray. I called my pastor, and I said, can you pray for Nalia? And I told my dad, I said, they say she's got Kawasaki disease. And my dad says, the only Kawasaki I know is a motorcycle. But she continues to do this back and forth, back and forth. And so they get her, they admit her. This is day five. She's now admitted. And they continue to run tests. In fact, I had to ask my wife to kind of give me an idea, of, remind me of all the things they did. Because frankly, the, the days were a blur. Nalia was in the hospital for seven days, two ER visits an urgent care visit, an ambulance ride. They ran multiple CT scans, multiple ultrasounds, multiple EK, um, echocardiograms, an MRI, and practically every other test the doctors could think of. Until they were finally satisfied that, yes, this is what this is. And so the next round is two rounds of antibodies of something they call IVIgG. Essentially, they hook her up to two half-gallon bottles of this thing of antibodies that knock out whatever is going on with her. But we're praying now, because we don't have the resources for seven days now in the hospital, let alone all the tests they've run. And we're talking to God, and we're saying, Lord, you brought us out here. What, what is this? I'm here to tell you tonight that sometimes God does things in your life 
that will not make sense to you. And the only thing you can do in those moments is to hold on to him, trust him, and believe in your heart that there will come a day when you will look back and see what God was doing. And then, it will, then you will understand. Then it will make sense. In conversation with some of the nurses and uh, some of the professionals there, we came to find out that California has a program for parents of kids who have Kawasaki disease and who are uninsured. Friends, I'm here to tell you tonight, it's been two years, and Leah's in the back, she's doing just fine. Two years, and we have yet to see a bill from seven days in the hospital. I believe in my heart of hearts, God was saying, yeah, I brought you out here. I've got you. Your family's not near. You're, you're now making friends. You're discovering this new place, this new state. I've got you. And sometimes this is what God has to do to help us realize we're not on our own. God's got us. My favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to, to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and the future. And every day I see God repeat that verse to me when I look at Nalia. And so I want to just share that with you tonight. God's got you. It, it may not be your kid in the hospital. It could be you. It could be grades. It could be work. It could be school. It could be your family. Whatever challenge you are going through, God wants you to know that he's got you. Whenever we tell this story, we're acutely aware of two things. One, God took care of us financially when we couldn't imagine how it was going to happen. And two, we think about the fact that we are, were here where, for whatever reason, this particular disease is really well known and they have all the, the skills to take care of it. Had we been in Minneapolis, I'm not so sure how long it would have taken for them to diagnose Nalia. That's my reminder to you that God will take care of you. Be blessed. Hey, good evening, everyone. Man, it is so good to be in front of all of you. Thanks, Matt. You know, I really appreciate this evening so much. Alex, brother, thank you so much for your gift, your call to music and worship, and Pamela and uh, Tiana and the rest of you. Wow, Josh, thank you for coordinating and orchestrating this. And Phil, honestly, it is a gift. Thank you, choir, everyone who is in the band. Shane, your story, your word, where God has brought you and your family. Thank you so much, everyone. Honestly, this ministry doesn't exist on the foundation of one person. It exists when God's people say, Lord, I have something. Let me use it. If you've been coming to church and you've been just kind of taking and taking and taking, there's only so long you can do that until you realize you're not really a member of a church community. You're just a consumer of religious things. 
I don't know how many of you are ready to take that step of serving and finding yourself in the community and saying, God, I want to give of myself. I want to be used by you, Lord. Some of you do that in your workplace, and some of you do that in your school spaces. Some of you do that in church, and I just want to encourage you. I don't want to make this to be the primary space where your talents and gifts are used, but I want to just tell you, don't use your gifts simply for video gaming. Don't just use your gifts for looking good. Don't just use your gifts for getting a degree. Don't just use your gifts to please yourself. Use the gifts God has given you to build people up. That is the reason you've been given gifts. It is not simply for self, but for the kingdom. Some of you are catching us the very first time. My name is Philip. I'm the pastor for young adult ministry here at the University Church. I'm on your team. If I can do anything, I love you guys. We clap for all of you, man. I want to just say that if you ever need anything, please let me know. Pastor Philip at LUC.org, and it's Philip with an F. Tonight, I want to pray for you because tonight's message, as we finish this series, man, it is, it is vital. It is so important. And I think it's one of the most important messages of the series. This chapter, wow. I mean, I went through it left and right, up and down, and I was like, God, I don't know if they're ready for this. But this is a message you've got to hear. Jesus, speak into your people. God, these young adults that are here tonight are powerful. They're educated. They're talented. They are beautiful. They have many friends. They have so many things. But Jesus, I pray they would not look at a single exterior thing they have. Father, if they do not have you and if their life does not reflect you, Lord, rebuke them tonight. Father, would you seek after your people relentlessly? And Jesus, I pray the one tonight who is wandering and who's been running would be able to say, Lord, I'm done. I'm found in you. I pray, Jesus, the one who's been bearing the sins and guilt and shame would come to their father and say, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Lord, I pray for the one who's been aimlessly wandering in loneliness and despair and depression. And Jesus, may they say, I have a community and a God who loves me. And Lord, I pray the one who is arrogant and egotistical and the one who says, I have it all, May they be humbled before the throne and a God who says, I don't necessarily need you, but I'd love to have you on my team. So, Father, I pray your spirit would speak in spite of me. In Jesus' name, amen. The series we catch is called The Old Guard is Dying, based on the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is the foundation of the last very thing that Paul ever writes. Literally, nothing else is recorded pretty much after this. Why? Because of Nero. Nero, the fanatical lunatic of an emperor, literally burns half of Rome and looks at the Christians and says, they did it. Literally, this guy couldn't find anyone else to blame because he couldn't blame himself for his idiot decisions, but he blamed the Christians. 
You see, Paul had already stood trial once and survived. He was then placed in house arrest and then free to go, and he did various missionary journeys. And he ended up going to a city called Lystra, and there he found Timothy. And Timothy was the very person that this book was written to, young, adult, a leader, you. And there, Timothy also got to then journey with Paul, and he saw Paul as the book of Acts, Luke's kind of fifth, you could call it, gospel of of Jesus and the Holy Spirit moving through God's people once Jesus left. There, it recounts that Paul was stoned, and everyone believed he was dead. And then the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he emerges like, like this powerful thing in the middle of rubble and huge stones. <sighs> as if nothing had happened. And Timothy got to see miracle after miracle with Paul, and he came to say, there's something to Jesus that I've got to take seriously. And so Timothy hears the call of God, go and preach, and he accepts the call to become a minister of the gospel. But you see, Timothy was also in an era and a time when Christians alongside Paul were under serious persecution. Christians were being persecuted in the most heinous of ways. They would take dead carcasses and they would sow them into the flesh of Christians, throw them into the Colosseums and release the wild dogs. They would place Christians on crosses and set them ablaze as they would sing songs about Christ. One of the very first hymns of the believers is actually found in Philippians chapter 2. And there they would be lit up in the night sky of Rome, believers. And Paul knew this very well, this idea of persecution, because he, for many years, a Jewish leader, persecuted the believers. But now he found himself on the opposite end, now being persecuted himself. Now he was placed in the maritime prison there in Rome, in the very bottom dungeon, cold, weary, lonely, hurting. I don't know how many of you feel just cold in your spirit. It's been a long journey this year already. You're looking forward to the holidays. God, I need your rest. Well, Paul is writing and writing frantically because these are his last words, and he writes this, and I want you to pull out your Bible with me to first the very first verses of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And here we go. The very beginning of the book begins, Paul saying to Timothy, my dear son. You see, Paul is a single guy. He was never married. He never had any kids. But he looked at Timothy as his son, someone whom he loved dearly. And he told him these words in chapter 4, verse 1, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in the view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The question some of you might be wondering, Pastor Philip, why are we studying this book? Like, what's the purpose of it? We'll give you three quick reasons why it's so important that we read this text. Number one, the gospel matters, and that's what this book is about. Timothy is told the very first thing, preach, preach, 
Preach because the gospel matters. Secondly, Christians need to prepare to suffer. We just don't understand suffering. I talked with someone just this very week, and they're visiting someone in the hospital, and like then the person I'm visiting just doesn't understand why they're suffering. They already dealt with issues, and now they're dealing with them again, and they're just like, God, why me? We so many times forget when Jesus said in the Gospels, in this life, you will have many trials and troubles. We have to learn how to die unafraid, die in the midst of a world that says, no, it's about luxury, it's about comfort, it's about having it easy, it's about just amassing the things in life to make you happy, it's about living in a joyous season, it's about prosperity, it's about that's what Jesus will do for you, you're protected, you're cared for. But the reality though is, people died who were Christians. And there are Christians today who are hungry in many parts of the world and even in Christianity. As a kid, we grew up in poverty. Literally, you open the fridge, you spit in it because there was nothing in it. We were believers, Adventists. You will suffer in this life. Why read 2 Timothy? Because you need to understand that's part of the human existence. And it's important as a believer not to look to God as the cause of your suffering, but rather as the means in which you endure through suffering. Last reason why is because young people today need to realize they're going to leave the church. Paul's dying. The old guard is dying. In the next 10 years, we're going to see the greatest exodus of boomers out of the workplace. You young adults are about, hey boomer, You're about to take over. You're literally about to take over. Some of you will become, you're going to take over me. I might not be here very much longer. Kelly just started as one of our pastoral interns. You might just take over, girl. You got it. But that's the thing. You have to realize Paul is writing to the young because he says you're about to take over. And so this book is about to declare to you and me how we are intended to live as young adults. And so I'm going to go back over what I just read because I want you now to think about it through that lens. This is for me. This is for the purpose of me understanding how I ought to live as a young person today. Catch this again. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in the view of his appearing in his kingdom. The first point is judgment's coming. Paul tells him this charge because judgment is coming. What if you lived your life in the reality that the judgment of God is coming? What if you actually lived it? I mean, every day, like you got up and you're like, dude, God has a coming. It will be soon. And there is a judgment. You know, we've really swung to this far pendulum of the love and mercy and grace of God. And we've forgotten that there's this notion of a judgment. There is an accounting of the way we live our life. The title of this sermon is How You Live Matters. Because what? There's a judgment. And Paul gives this reality to this young person. He's like, dude, I need you to recognize something. God's coming 
And he's going to judge the dead and those who are alive when he appears. That will happen. Don't take it for granted. Don't think you can just choose to live however you want, Timothy. You can't. I know you're young. I know you're beautiful. I know the ladies like you there in Rome. But I need you to recognize it matters how you live. And so then he tells him this word. Verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. This was literally just the very thing of preach the word of God. He only had the Old Testament, those 39 books. That's all he had. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the Gospels. He had some of the letters that Paul was writing, and at that time, it wasn't canonical. It wasn't made into the New Testament. He just had the Old Testament. So he's calling him, know the word, preach the word. And he tells him how to do that. He says, be prepared in the season and out of season. You know, it's interesting when you're kind of all of a sudden caught off guard when someone tells you a question, asks you a question about your faith. I don't know how many of you have ever worked in a, in a non-Christian place. I used to work in McDonald's. We make you smile there. They put me at the front because I really sucked at the grill. Like, you know what, pretty boy, just go to the front. You have a better smile than you do a hands at the grill. Just stay up there. So they did. Well, I enjoyed working there, but it was interesting. My coworkers also were just always so perturbed, not perturbed, but more intrigued about how I lived my life. They're like, why aren't you going out with us on Friday night? Dude, you could get laid. Bro, you'll have all the beers you want. Hey, we'll talk up there too. Come on. I remember this one guy in my Spanish class. He, every single Spanish class, Daniel, like, dude, come over to my house. I have all the weed you want. And always people were fascinated why I would say no. They were always just like, how does this guy not want? Why? Like, what in the world? Like, what do you do? Why? You know, there was always this strange, like, grimace on people's face. Like, idiot. You're missing out. You're lame. What are you doing with your life? They imagine that those things, for some reason, would bring some significance and meaning. And, and I don't mean to demean the testimony that some of you had because you've been in those spaces, you've lived in those spaces. That is kind of how God has kind of moved through you and you've walked away from that. And, and so you have a word to declare to people from that. I, I wasn't really in those spaces. I did drink alcohol a couple of times. I, I know, I admit it. Shoot, that was a big, that was a big. <laughs> oh, man, that was a huge gasp. I love that. That was good, that was good, that was good. I'm not here to confess all my sins, but just a couple, okay? Just a couple. That was just a couple. That was good, Miss Lynn. I like that. <gasps> yeah, yeah, okay. Anyways. All that to say, all that to say, going back to Timothy, let's leave Philip alone for a moment. <laughs> Timothy is called to rise up to an example that others might see, that when he preaches the word, he might be ready because his testimony declares the truth. I need to say that again. Lie is the only one that got that. 
Paul encourages Timothy to preach the word and to be ready in season and out of season. But it's because of his testimony he can declare it and be asked about his testimony. When you don't live in a way that says you're a Christian, people will never ask you anything. They don't care because you're like them. They don't care because you won't push them. They won't care about verse 2. Correct rebuke. Hmm. Wait a second. Paul is telling this young dude to preach the word, to be ready in season, out of season, let his testimony live out into the world as he's a believer that they might know. But then he also tells him to do what? Correct? Rebuke? That's tough. That's tough for us in the church right now. It's tough for people in general. It's like, dude, I need to live my truth. I need to live how I need to. I'm just doing my thing. You do your thing. I'm living how I want. You live how you want. Don't tell me what to do. That's me. Why are you judging me, bro? Leave me alone. That's not Jesus. That's not love. That's not good. But that's not what Paul told this young adult, this young leader. He said, no. Actually, as a leader, as a believer, you're called to rebuke and correct. The notion of a shepherd's rod, it's, it's got this kind of curved edge. We don't really see that very much, but, but that's the idea of the rebuke. It's, it's when the shepherd would take the sheep and he would guide them. He would take them kind of by the neck and take them into the right space. Why? Because he cared. If you're eager and more eager and more zealous to call people out on their sin because you want to do that instead of love them deeply through their sin, you're probably not the right person to be rebuking and correcting. Because the next point he says is encourage. Those are two parts of the call of every, le of every leader who's a young person. You call people to truth but you love them through it. If you can't do both of those, you have no business doing either of those. Because that's the part that Timothy is called to live into. You're responsible to call people to faithfulness right now in your life. It's not about feeling the, the need and the pressure to like step on people's toes and, well, I don't know, pastor, that's your job. And and then other pastors get nervous. Well, I don't know if it's my job. And then no one's calling anyone out on sin and calling them to rebuke. Why? Because of this very thing. I want you to go to another book that Timothy, not the Timothy, that Paul wrote. And it's called T Titus. And look at this with me just for a moment. Look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. I want you to understand why it's so important that we correct and rebuke and call people to faithfulness. If I can find the book. Right after Hebrews, there we go. Right after Timothy, there you go. Let's start the next book, sorry. Titus chapter 1 and verse 10, rebuking those who will fail to do good is the section title in my Bible. And it says here, for there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. I know this is going to get weird for a moment. They must be silenced 
Because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of the Cretes' own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Well, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith. Paul's telling Titus here, rebuke people so that they can walk in faithfulness. Rebuke people not to just call them out. You call them out because you care. You call people out because you love. You want to see them walk in faithfulness. And um, call them into sound and faith and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or in the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and who do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God by their actions, but they deny him. Knowing God by words, but then denying him in action. Those people need to be called to faithfulness. You see, I love there's this one ministry, it's, and it's like, how do we bring revival to the people of God? Because they've veered off rebuke, correction. I don't know how many of you here tonight need to ponder just for a moment, Lord, How have I been veering off? How have I been going astray? Lord, how can I be as David who prayed, Lord, try me and know me. Know every anxious way within me and correct me, O Lord. How might that need to be you tonight in some way potentially? Why don't you just take a moment and just think about your life for a moment. What is it that you might need to lay before Jesus and to pray over tonight? He goes on. Verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. Why is he giving him this charge to preach the word? Because of the following. Listen to this. For a time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine. I'm going to just stop for a moment. The next thing I'm about to read is the three-part act to decline and deceit in your, in your spiritual life. Listen to, find the three parts for me just for a moment, okay? For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. What are the three parts to spiritual decline? What did you catch in here? I want to hear from you. You need to put your thinking caps on. You can't just be consumers right now. I'm going to read it again. You ready for this? Three parts to spiritual decline. A time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn away from the truth and turn aside, rather, to myths. So what's going to happen? What's step one? 
All right, so people are just going to say, hey, forget the truth that you're telling me. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Sound doctrine. And then what are they going to do too? They're going to gather around them people who tell them exactly what they want to hear. I'll find a teacher of the word who's going to tell me my sexual ethic is better, that my political views are better, that my teaching and understanding of this is better, that my understanding of this is way better, and it aligns exactly with what I want and believe. Oof, oof, wow. And then number three, what happens? And then they finally walk away from truth. Shoot. That is a tough reality. Paul tells him very clearly, the reason why I'm calling you to preach, teach, rebuke, correct, is because a time is coming, and I think it's here. That people no longer want to stay with the truth and rather want to stay with what they feel and believe is right. If it's based on Scripture or not, it doesn't really matter because it's no longer how we, listen to this, it's no longer my understanding of the Scripture versus your understanding of the scripture. It's my understanding of the scripture versus simply your story and experience. Are you catching the nuance here? We're no longer having a disagreement about the Bible. It doesn't even matter. The Bible, who cares what the Bible says? Well, friend, if you call yourself a believer, it matters everything what the Bible says. I, I understand it's painful when my story and the way I lived doesn't line up with Scripture. It's painful. But the reality is we're called to a standard, a foundation to lay our feet on that's solid, that's structured, that's founded in truth. My story must find itself within the larger story of Scripture. It can't be the other way around. You can't look at Scripture and say, ah, you know what? This chapter is not inspired. This chapter may be kind of inspired. This chapter just doesn't make sense. Skip to the next one. This chapter for sure, I believe. That kind of approach to the way we understand God and and his word is not the freedom we've been given. Either you believe the chapter that we just finished last week. Chapter 3, look at verse 16 for a moment. Chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, it says, All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How much of scripture? Just the parts that I like? that your favorite pastor likes, your favorite teacher likes. Either it's all or it's none. Either it's all of the Bible or it's just kind of your figment of imagination. I think that right now we're in a really scary time because there are so many people who are standing up against the Bible not in big ways, not in huge ways. Oh, I think the Bible is awful. You shouldn't read it. It's terrible. Is that people start saying certain things mm, just don't really matter anymore. Ah, this is not a big deal anymore. Mm, you know, I don't know about that. You don't need to call people out on sin. That's not a big deal anymore. 
Just, just, just live in God's grace, in his mercy, his provision over you. And I believe that's true, but Paul doesn't give us that liberty. He says, rebuke and correct, but also encourage. Judgment and grace are brother and sister. Because within Jesus are found both. He looks at Mary caught in adultery, says, woman, where are your accusers? Where? You're in front of the man called love and grace. And now I tell you, go and sin no more. Judgment and love intertwined together. And so Paul goes on here, and just to conclude, and I want to finish this last thing, and I'm going to ask my brothers and sisters in the band to come up. Verse 6, verse 5, But you keep your head in all situations. Endure what? Hardship. Suffering. Endure through it. You've got to make it through the tough seasons. There will be many. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge the duties of your ministry. Do the good work you've been called to do. And then he laves him with this, the most beautiful section of this whole book, and even of Scripture, you could say, of the New Testament. From I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there in store for me is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but all who've longed for my appearing. Paul tells him, listen, there is a judgment coming. This is what I see in the midst of it. This is what you're called to live like. And I want you to know, I've done what I've told you to do. You ever see someone who's saying, hey, listen, do this, do this, do this. And you're like, bro, I know your life. I definitely know you don't do that. Don't be telling me how to eat. I see what you eat on the times you quote unquote cheat days. It ends up being the whole week. It's cheating. There was this man who was trying to trace his origins, and he ends up going through a cemetery. And he finds this kind of stone, and he finds it interesting, and he starts to read it. And it says this, Pause now, stranger, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so soon you'll be. Prepare yourself to follow me. But then next to the kind of grave marker, he found this other plaque that said this right next to it, next to those words. He said, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. You see, Paul gives him this beautiful word of like, man, I've fought the good fight. I've lived the faith. And he did. He absolutely did. I want you to ponder your death more often. I want you to think about the end of your life regularly. God, how will I be remembered? Will I be one who has said, I walked faithfully. I stepped through this life faltering as I did, sinful as I was. But God, I got up every time. I got up and looked up in heaven and said, Jesus, be my God. Forgive me of my sin. Help me to lead people to know you, to love you, and to be like you. Friend, I want you to be able to say, as Paul did, I've fought the good fight. And so today, I want to encourage you, the way you live matters. The actions you take matter. The thoughts you think matter. 
You've probably heard these famed words that Frank Outlaw wrote. Watch your thoughts, they become your words. Watch your words, they become your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. How you live absolutely matters. Jesus is yearning for a people today, tonight, right now, who will rest their case on the solid foundation in Christ. And young people today who are willing to say that truth matters, who are willing to die for it. You see, Paul didn't have another year or two to live. He unfortunately, as kind of Bible scholars assume he found the end of a Roman sword and was killed. One of my favorite movies, similarly in this way, of a man dying for what he believed in, William Wallace, a film called Braveheart. You have to know what you were willing to die for. Right now, that's what we need to analyze and ask ourselves. Lord, what am I willing to die for? And when you think about what you're willing to die for, then you need to go backwards and say, God, how can I live for that today? Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, Follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.